Send him in, please, Money Penny. Without the usual shenanigans, if at all possible. I'm sorry, Money Penny. M would have me court-martialed for improper use of government equipment. <sighs> Good morning, M. How's the wife? My home life has nothing to do with the case in hand, 007. Ah. She's still away at her sister's, isn't she? Does it look like I've been home, Bond? Oh, just wondering, Em, just wondering. The reason, 007, that you've been called here is that we have intercepted some very disturbing information from our sources across the world. There is a danger, Bond. A danger in this sceptered isle. Oh, you mean we didn't have the budget in this film to send me anywhere tropical? We could only just scrape the train fare together. We are living through hard times. All right, then. So, what am I going to do, and what's the problem? Look at this photo. Tell me what you see. Hmm. Em, why are you wearing a dress in this photo? That's my mother, Bond. And look behind her. Oh. Sorry, Em. Really. Ah, let's see. It's a radio telescope, a lot like the Arecibo dish I slid down during that golden eye business. Exactly. But this one is based in Cheshire, and it's called Jodrell Bank. We have reason to believe that over the past two years, scientists there have been working on a devastating weapon of mass information known only as the... Sky at Night magazine. No. Astronomy Now. No. Much more devastating than those. Bond, we want you to go to Jodrell Bank. We want you to find out what this thing is and what it can do. You will know it when you hear its code name. It's called... Jodcast. All your beer are belong to us. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. November issue. Hello, and welcome to the November issue of the Jodcast. I'm back. Don't worry, I was only off for one, but uh, I'm back now. And I'm joined again by Nick and Stuart. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello. So, coming up on this month's issue, we've got Jill Tarter, the director of the Centre for SETI Research about the search for alien life, Douglas Pierce Price of ESO about the Catch a Star competition, Andrew Walsh of James Cook University on Australia about beer in space, and, of course, we have the regular Night Sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Outburst of Comet Holmes. Direct evidence of cosmic ray production. And Black Hole challenges theories of stellar evolution. A normally faint comet suddenly brightened by several magnitudes during October. Comet 17P, also known as Comet Holmes, jumped from a magnitude of 17 to a magnitude of 2 at the end of the month, making it easily visible to the unaided eye. Located in the constellation of Perseus, the comet had no visible tail, leading to some observers reporting it as a new star rather than a comet. Originally discovered by amateur astronomer Edwin Holmes in 1892, Comet 17P orbits the Sun in seven years. This is not the first time that it has undergone an outburst. After its discovery, it brightened to magnitude 4 before fading and then brightening again in 1893 before fading away from sight. Since then it has been spotted a few times, but this is the most spectacular increase in brightness in the comet's history. On this occasion it is reported that its brightness leapt from magnitude 17 to magnitude 7 within one day. It is so far unclear what has caused such a dramatic change in this comet. 
One suggestion that has been made is that a giant crack developing on the surface of the comet exposed fresh volatile material to the warming effects of the sun and caused a major eruption. It is unknown how long this outburst will last, so if you are lucky enough to have clear skies, it is worth taking a look. Supernova explosions are some of the most energetic events in the universe. It has been predicted that high-energy cosmic rays are created in these events. As shockwaves from the supernova expand into the interstellar medium, particles are accelerated by the magnetic field, and it is this acceleration which produces cosmic rays. Until now, however, this has been based on theoretical models rather than direct measurements. But observations led by Yanosobu Uchiyama from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency have seen evidence of real-time cosmic ray production for the first time. Using data from the Chandra X-ray Observatory and the recently launched Suzaku X-ray Observatory, the astronomers found a surprising variability in the amount of X-ray emission measured in small regions of a particular supernova remnant over several years. Models of supernovae often assume that the X-ray flux remains almost constant over long periods of time. The team suggests that the variability seen in these observations could be due to the magnetic field of the supernova being strongly amplified by the expanding shockwaves caused by the explosion, providing the first direct observational evidence of this mechanism. Weighing astronomical objects can be a tricky job. If the object of interest has something else in orbit around it, then the speed of the orbit can put a limit on the gravity and therefore the mass of the object. As the orbit is probably inclined at some angle to the observer's line of sight, the actual value of the mass and inclination cannot always be determined. In systems such as eclipsing binaries, where one object passes in front of the other, the inclination of the orbit is very well constrained, and, together with an estimate of the distance and the mass of the companion object, the mass can be determined quite accurately. A team of astronomers have now used observations with the Gemini North Telescope and the Chandra satellite to determine the mass of a black hole binary in M33, known as M33X7. This is, so far, the only known black hole in an eclipsing binary system. The black hole itself is the remains of a massive star that came to the end of its stellar phase some time ago and exploded catastrophically, leaving behind a black hole, together with the original companion star. In this case, a massive star of 70 solar masses orbiting the black hole every 3.45 days. Models of stellar evolution predict that the upper limit on the mass of these small black holes is 10 solar masses, 10 times the mass of our Sun. When they used their observations to estimate the mass of this black hole, their result was just over 15.5 solar masses, with an uncertainty of just under 1.5 solar masses. This result has not only provided a good estimate of the mass of a small black hole, but has challenged some stellar evolution models. By extending observations of these systems to other galaxies, astronomers hope to discover more examples of black holes in eclipsing binary systems and investigate whether even larger black holes can form in this way. And finally, the International Astronomical Union has named an asteroid in honour of George Takai, better known as Mr Sulu, the helmsman on board the USS Enterprise in the series Star Trek. The rock, now known as 7307 Takai, joins others named after Nichelle Nichols, also known as Lieutenant Uhura, and the series creator Gene Roddenberry. Thanks, Megan. And you can hear more about Comet Holmes from Ian Morrison later in the show. Uh, people who have supplied feedback on the website, many thanks go to Nata Pesabot, Country Bumpkin, Joe Jones, Brandon Kazoris, Pete Mills, who listens to the Jodcast in the car, presumably while he's driving, and Ray McNamara, who said that the Jodcast was the best show on the sub-ether band in the whole of the galaxy. And on iTunes, we've had three reviews this month. We had a review from Me Honestly, 
The Very Tall One and Godzilla 2007. Thanks very much to those people for reviewing us on iTunes. And if anyone else is still out there who hasn't reviewed us on iTunes, please, please, please go along to iTunes and give us a review. Absolutely. And we need to know how we are doing. We need to know if we are giving you the type of interviews, the type of news that you want to hear, because that's the way that we can get the Judcast to be even better. And that's why we are repeating what we did last year of putting up a survey on the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net, which you can fill out, and that will give us a better idea of where you want the Jodcast to go. Yeah, we've already had some responses to that survey, and the closing date is Tuesday the 13th of November, so if you haven't already filled it in, please go and fill it in now. And we even have a prize for filling out a survey. One lucky respondent will get a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars. Yeah, an excellent prize, and you can use those to go and look at Comet Homes. And talking of prizes, another competition that you might be interested in is the Catch a Star competition. So I'm joined by Douglas Pierce-Price, the Education Officer at ESO, which is the European Organisation for Astronomical Research in the Southern Hemisphere. So Douglas, tell us about the Catch a Star competition. Okay, well, um, Catch a Star is uh, an astronomical competition for school students that ESO has been running for several years in conjunction with the European Association for Astronomy Education, the EAAE. And the aim of this competition is to get school students from around the world excited and thinking about astronomy. And so in order to do this, what we actually have in Catch a Star is a set of different competitions to try to make sure that there is something for everyone, no matter what their level. And what what are those competitions? Well, the competition is divided up into uh, three categories. So we have Catch-A-Star researchers, Catch-A-Star adventurers, and Catch-A-Star artists. So for the researchers competition, this is the, the main part of the competition. Um, and teams of students plus a teacher work on writing a project about some astronomical theme that they've chosen. Uh, it could be anything from black holes or uh, a particular galaxy or some astronomical phenomenon. And the idea is that they write about this, they do a, do their own research by reading about it in libraries and so on, and put together a written project about that in which they also talk about how modern research class telescopes like uh, ESO's Very Large Telescope or the forthcoming ALMA telescope or the future Extremely Large Telescope will, will be able to observe this kind of thing. And that has to be in English. Whereas the adventurous category you do not have to write in English. So we're trying to make it possible for absolutely everyone to take part. And there the prizes are are not so big and the prizes are actually awarded by lottery because our aim there is not to have some sort of elitist thing going on. We really just want to get the kids interested in astronomy. But if you're taking part in the researchers category of the competition, you do need to write in English um, and the prizes will be awarded by an international jury. And these are very big prizes. For example, the top prize, which is really fantastic, is a trip to go and see the ESO Very Large Telescope on Paranal in Chile. And we also have prizes to go and visit the Königsleiten Observatory in Austria and the Cala Alto Observatory in Spain. That's a a once in a lifetime opportunity, really. Exactly. it, It really is a fantastic trip. There are similar prizes available for the rest of the researchers category are things like astronomy software, DVD-ROMs and so on, uh, exclusive Catch-A-Star t-shirts and ESO posters showing some of the imagery that we're getting out of the Very Large Telescope. 
Right, very good. And you also have an artist competition as well, you said. We do indeed. So this is this is Catch a Star Artists. It's uh, an artwork competition. So put together a drawing, a painting or some other piece of art and send it in to us. Uh, we'll put all of the entries that we get on the website. So your work will be shown in our gallery. And we actually will have most of our prizes being awarded with the help of a, a public web-based vote once all of the entries are in. Those prizes there will be similar to the prizes I just described, astronomy software, posters, T-shirts, and so on. Um, but we're also actually very excited this year because Gary Harwood, an astronomical artist, is kindly agreeing to judge uh, the, this competition as well. So he will be awarding a special prize uh, for one of the artworks that he chooses. And what's that prize? The prize from Gary Harwood is an astronomy DVD-ROM, again, some astronomy software, and also a copy of a book uh, called Space Art by Michael Carroll, which is actually a book that tells you how to draw and paint planets, moons, and alien worlds. Oh, excellent. And you do have the previous year's artwork on the ESO website, don't you, for everyone to peruse, and there's some fantastic things Absolutely. there. Absolutely. We had uh, getting on for 400 entries last year, and we're hoping to have even more this year, but you can go to, to the website and look at the Catch a Star 2007 competition, and you can see all of the entries that we had there. Does it only go up to 18, though? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you, you can take part if you're in primary or secondary education anywhere in the world. Uh, and you're eligible for most of the prizes I've described. And then the big travel prizes, like the trip to Chile, uh, are for students from schools in Europe or Chile. Will there be any plans to, to broaden this out to adults, for those adults who are feeling very jealous of children getting these prizes? That's a very good question. It's, um, Catch a Star has always been something that has been aimed specifically at, at schools and at school students. But we're, we're currently looking forward uh, and planning for 2009 being the International Year of Astronomy. And we are planning various things for 2009. And it's possible that we will have some kind of competitions again, which will be open to absolutely everybody, including adults. We don't know exactly yet what we're planning, but this is certainly something that we can consider. Fantastic. Thank you for talking to us about it on the Jodcast. Thank you. Well, that sounds fantastic, and I'm I'm just annoyed that I can't actually enter myself. Yeah, or maybe in 2009, Dave. Yeah, I know, but I tell you what, I might tell my nephew about that, because when he was about one and a half, I had him identifying planets by sight, and he could even name them. Excellent. Oh, now that he's almost four, I think I might try and get him to draw a picture, or maybe even write a 3,000-word essay. <laughs> Hopefully also in 2009, some more people who will be able to enter the competition will be extraterrestrials, because at the moment the competition is only open to people in Europe and Chile. At the beginning of October, Jill Tata came to visit Jodrell Bank Observatory, and while she was there, Nick caught up with her, and this is what he found out. You're Jill Tata at the SETI Institute. Now, the SETI Institute is world-famous. Uh -huh. Tell us tell us a little bit about uh, the SETI Institute and your work in it. Well, for those people who don't understand SETI, it stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and it's located in Mountain View, California. And uh, although we do at the Institute a wide range of astrobiology, my group actually uses radio telescopes around the world to search for evidence of someone else's technology. Okay, so that's it's not simply just looking for messages from... ET or extraterrestrial 
intelligent life, you're looking for any kind of evidence that they exist rather than direct messages. That's right. It would uh, probably be easier for us to find a message that was deliberately sent because someone's gone to some effort to make it uh, stronger and directed towards us. But indeed, there is some probability that we could eavesdrop on someone's um, radar system, an advanced technology which was trying to avoid uh, collision with um, asteroids or someone who had an interplanetary uh, civilization and therefore was sending, um, is it the rugby games from uh, one planet to another? <laughs> so tell us about the telescopes that you use. You mentioned you use radio telescopes. Which ones do you predominantly use and how do you use them? Well, we've uh, used telescopes all over the world. We've uh, been to Australia and used Parks and MAPRA. In the U.S., we've used uh, the uh, National Radio Astronomy Observatory telescope in Green Bank and, a, and an old uh, telecom dish in Georgia that we refurbished to uh, do SETI. And indeed, we've observed here at Jodrell Bank and used Jodrell in conjunction with Arecibo at the same time. We tried in the past to use two telescopes that were widely separated in order to help us discriminate, to, to sort out signals that are of our own making rather than ones that might be coming from the stars. Right, so you needed to make sure that you weren't listening to Radio Greenland or, or something like that from the other side of our, our own world. That's right. More like radars and, and uh, overflying airplanes and satellites. But, uh, yes, we, we hear a lot of our own signals and have to filter that out. So do you use these telescopes directly for SETI or can other astronomers use the information for other other means? Or is, it, is there a dedicated SETI search? Have there been dedicated SETI searches in the past? Well, in the past, when we've been using these telescopes, they've been assigned to us. So we've applied for time and had as much as 5% of the time here at Jodrell and at Arecibo, which is, is a lot for a lot any particular program. But that also meant that 95% of the time we're off the air. So what we're doing right now is building our own telescope, and we're building it in a way that when we do SETI, uh, radio astronomers can do traditional studies with the telescope at the same time. So we're aiming to be on the air 24-7, and that will be new and exciting and fabulous, and we're going to dedicate that telescope, for the, the first part of it, uh, on the 11th of October. So these other astronomers will be using your telescope, which you've got funding for and are going to build, to do their astronomy research, which may or may not include looking for extraterrestrial life. They might be doing well, whatever research topics they want to pursue. Yet you, at the same time, will be doing the search for extraterrestrial signals. That's right. We built the telescope um, as an array. So multiple telescopes, and they're all small. They're each only each dish is only six meters in diameter, which means that when um, the signals from all the telescopes, and right now we have 42, and are looking to grow it to 350 of these dishes. Um, but when the signals from these telescopes are combined, end up looking at a very large piece of the sky all at once, and so we put different back ends, different detectors. Uh, at the telescope, and for example, my radio astronomy colleagues can use something called an imaging correlator to essentially make a radio picture of that big piece of the sky, and each uh, pixel can be investigated in frequency range, so there'll be a number of frequency channels associated with it. So it's, it's a radio camera, a wide-field radio camera for them, and for me, I combine the signals from all the telescopes in a slightly different way, so that instead of looking and seeing a picture from all these pixels on the sky, I actually pick out 
a handful of pixels and I steer the beams around so that the pixels I select are in the directions of stars that are like our own sun where there's a probability that there might be planets and intelligence and technology and I can therefore stare at these individual pixels take my data on the individual stars at the same time my colleagues are measuring the um, the amount of hydrogen in the local galaxy or uh, timing uh, the arrival of signals from a network of pulsars the kind of thing that Jodrell does all the time mm. so you are not interested in a large amount of the imaging which is being taken by the telescope array, just those pixels which are centred on stars, presumably because we'd like to think that alien life will live on planets similar to, similar to Earth, so they should orbit around stars, etc. So you're only interested in the signals which, you know, uh, which might be coming from the, the pixels uh, containing stars. Well, that's our guess at the moment, that uh, we should be investigating the vicinity of stars like like the sun. Now, if I could, what I would do is take my signal detection equipment, which has hundreds of millions of spectral channels, and um, if I could build enough equipment, afford to do that, I'd put my equipment behind every single pixel mm. in the field of view and look in all directions. It's just a question of the um, the cost of, yes. of doing that. So presumably you want to make sure that, well, the, first of all, we buy and install and use equipment which is going to be enough to cover the stars that we see in our, in our radio map, but you'd like more and you'd like to soak up as much information as, you, as you're looking at. We would, and it will get cheaper in the future, after all. For us now, it's just mainly about computing, and Moore's Law means that uh, next year we'll be able to compute more for the same price. Mm. Um, and eventually... This is the kind of technology we'd like to go to. The, um, the square kilometer array is, is pushing in some, some of these exact same directions, a lot of spectral uh, capability and a lot of pixels on the sky. Now, you mentioned that your equipment is looking at a wide range of frequencies. I mean, you, you do this, why? Well, because we don't know what frequency a signal might arrive at. Uh, we, we've made a guess in the radio part of the spectrum, that the signals that are most obviously technological as opposed to astrophysical are ones where the energy is compressed into essentially a single channel on the radio dial, if you wish. So because a natural process would be extremely difficult to achieve this, wouldn't it? As far as we know, nature can't do this trick, mm -hmm. but technology can. And But that's a single channel. And we don't know where on the radio dial that channel might be. So that means we have to um, investigate the whole portion of the radio spectrum that isn't uh, <clears throat> that that doesn't have a lot of extra noise. So alien I, FM isn't from eighty-eight to uh, one hundred and ten megahertz or whatever. <laughs> whatever well, it we might be. Use. It might be. But we <laughs> we don't know that yet. But what we've done is is. Uh, take a look at the radio spectrum and we know that at lower frequencies there's excess noise due to electrons that are spinning around the magnetic field in the Milky Way galaxy. That produces a radio hiss which is noise to us and at higher frequencies oxygen and water vapor in our own atmosphere create additional noise. So from from a thousand megahertz to um, 10 billion, 10 gigahertz um, there's a there's a quiet window, and that's where we're trying to observe. So if I look from um, 
one gigahertz to ten gigahertz. I've essentially got ten billion channels to search through. Ten billion channels. That's, that's amazing. And many people might be uh, aware of or know of the SETI at Home program, and that's related to this problem of observing many, many channels and frequency space, isn't it? It is. SETI at Home is an attempt to get a lot of telescope time uh, very inexpensively and to, to do it by piggybacking on other astronomers' radio science. So SETI at Home can't point the telescope. It can't, uh, it can't manage to, to look at particular stars or particular directions. But it can soak up all of the signals that are being uh, collected by radio astronomers for their purposes. And it looks at just a small amount of the frequency band because of the limits of uh, recording technology. Mm-hmm. It looks at about um, 2 megahertz, so a couple of million channels right around the hydrogen line. And it, uh, again, is is opposed to building signal detectors and special back-end hardware. What the SETI at home people have very cleverly done is just to record the data and then cut it up in frequency and time and ship it out to you so that you can use your home computer as a spectrometer to look for signals in that small work package and then send the results back and they're collected with everyone else's results, put through lots of different sieves and filters to get rid of our own signals and uh, looking for any residual, anything that's left over that we didn't know about that, that might be an extraterrestrial signal. And this was essentially a pioneering idea because people realized that many people's computers at home were sitting there most of the time on, yet not doing anything. There was lots of computer power out there, but wasn't being utilized. So they were able to realize that if people are interested in, in joining the search for extrasolar, sorry, extraterrestrial intelligence, they could do this at home with their computer by downloading, you know, as you say, a chunk of, of information and searching for it. Right. Distributed computing was not invented by SETI at Home. It's been around for a long time, this idea of taking a big problem and spreading it among a, a large number of machines. But not many people were doing it. Folks who were trying to break codes or factor Marcin primes or some other kind of esoteric uh, <laughs> mathematical problem. Um, but then SETI was such a sexy idea mm-hmm. that people really got galvanized by this. And uh, there are uh, more than 5 million people have downloaded this screensaver. There are any, at any moment, there are about 50,000 users processing the data. And in every country of the world, it's just captured people's imaginations. And now there are many other at-home projects. You can use your home computer to fold proteins for cancer research. You can look for pieces of dust grain in the data that's been returned from the Stardust sample uh, mission. You can count craters. You can do all kinds of other at-home projects, Einstein at home. Mm. Uh, lots of lots of good science can yes. be done this way by people who are interested. In particular, of course, we're talking about SETI, but as you mentioned, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence it captures the imagination of so many people in ways which uh, other science activities cannot. What's the interest, as far as you can tell? Why are people so you know caught up with the idea of alien life? Well, it's a fundamental question. I think um, probably... When, when the earliest ancestors walked out of the caves and looked up at the sky and saw these lights, they wondered what they were. And as we began to understand that 
those stars are suns, the idea that uh, other people might live around other suns um, is, is a very old one. And we just want to understand our place. We want to know whether we're alone in this cosmos or whether there are other creatures that explore their universe as well. It's a, a fundamental question. Are we alone? And it would be a ridiculous thing for me to ask, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you believe that alien life does exist in the universe? Well, actually, you use the wrong verb. Belief has nothing at all to do about it. We spent millennia asking the priests and the philosophers what to believe about life somewhere else. This is science. And we finally, uh, starting in the middle of the 20th century, began to have tools that would allow scientists and engineers to try and do experiments to answer this fundamental old question. And so we're trying. We're observing. We're asking the question and trying to answer it. We don't know what the answer is. Can we set some limits or some probability on whether alien life exists? We can try, but in the end, basically, all we're doing is organizing our ignorance. Frank Drake, back in um, the uh, 1960, developed what's called the Drake Equation, and it's, uh, it's a series of different probabilities that you multiply one by another, starting with uh, the number of stars and the number of planets that might be habitable and what fraction of them actually host life and what fraction of that life becomes intelligent and how often does that intelligence produce a civilization and technology and how long does it hang around? Are technological civilizations long-lived or not? Those are various factors in the Drake equation that we try and estimate. But in the end, you've got a big estimation and one guess multiplied by another. And so my own personal philosophy is not to calculate the probability, but to do the observation. Absolutely. We need the information first before we even start to speculate about anything else. I mean, as you say, the, our ignorance about some of these uh, elements of the Drake equation when we want to start multiplying probabilities is quite large. So essentially the result... Our ignorance is profound. <laughs> we should never forget that. A lot of people have said that, you know, well... Nothing has been found yet, so why should we continue with our search for alien signals? Well, we've been searching for 40 years, a little bit more than that. But we haven't been searching all the time. We've been on the telescope a small fraction of the time. And we've had relatively primitive tools, so we haven't searched very much of the possible space to explore it's many dimensions. It's not only frequency that's unknown, but, but we don't know um, where on the sky, when a signal might arrive. We don't know what information is encoded, if any, on it. Therefore, it's hard to build a matched filter. There's just a vast space to explore, and the universe is very large indeed. So even if we're trying to simply look at our own Milky Way galaxy, uh, we've not even scratched the surface of uh, the possible volume to be explored. And the good news is that uh, we're now beginning to have the tools to do a systematic search. The Allen Telescope Array, which we're going to, to dedicate uh, in um, a few days now, will be the first telescope that can be dedicated 24-7 to do SETI, as well as radio astronomy. And our computers are getting faster. 
We're also looking for optical signals now uh, that we can count photons very, very fast and avoid the background from the, the stellar light. Um, who knows whether tomorrow there will be a new technology that is developed that might also make sense in terms of looking for someone else's technology. Um, there's a lot of uh, space out there to mm-hmm. explore, and we're getting better at it. Tell us a little bit about the Allen Array. The Allen Telescope Array is an idea of building a very large radio telescope out of small pieces, individual antennas that are only 20 feet in diameter. With a lot of computing, you can combine the signals collected by all of the small antennas to make the equivalent of a very large antenna. And it not only has the sensitivity of a large antenna, but it has another capability which is since you've taken all that collecting area and put it into individual telescopes, they don't have to sit right next to each other. They can be spread out over large distances. And by doing that, you give the telescope um, better vision. It has the ability to spatially resolve uh, much smaller objects, to to have a a finer view, so more pixels, if you wish, on the sky. Mm. It's fantastic, exciting work. I mean, the, the... I, I just remember back in the day uh, watching Carl Sagan uh, and his uh, Cosmos TV programs. I mean, did you meet Carl Sagan? Carl actually was a colleague. I oh, knew him. I knew him quite well, and we we certainly miss him. And uh, we keep trying to find other spokespersons for for science, for astronomy that are as eloquent as Carl. And it's a very hard hard job to uh, to fill. So we miss him. Well, I have to say that probably one of the one of the reasons I became an astronomer was watching Carl Sagan and just being infected by his enthusiasm for uh, astronomy and science in general. That's true. Uh, Carl turned on a whole generation of young people. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much indeed for taking the time to uh, chat with us, and we wish you best for the the search. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Nick. And do you actually have an update on the progress of the Allen Array? Yes, indeed. The Allen Array was dedicated on October the 11th by the University of California at Berkeley and the SETI Institute. So the Allen Array is now fully operational and is currently taking scientific data. So it's all up and running. And, and just to note that the telescope's also being used for radio astronomy, as Jill said, and they've already got two images of the Andromeda Galaxy and the Pinwheel Galaxy. Um, on their website. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Yes, so even though the Allen Array is dedicated to looking for uh, evidence of extraterrestrials, other science, other radio science is also being done with the same telescope. Well, that's fantastic news. And if we do actually find alien life, there will be plenty of celebrating. And what better for celebrating, unless you're a teetotaler, than having a quick, cool pint? And Stuart, you caught up with Andrew Walsh to find out about beer in space. I did. Here's what he had to say. We're joined on the Jodcast by Andrew Walsh of the James Cook University in Northern Australia. And Andrew, you work on star formation. That's right. And you have some interesting things to tell us about beer in space. Well, it all comes about because uh, my research is involved in looking for various complex chemicals in space because they tell us something very useful about how stars form in our galaxy. Um, Mainly what you find is that very simple chemicals exist in the very early stages of star formation but then once a star starts to form then you get more complex chemicals more interesting chemistry going on and aside from my career as an astronomer 
I'm also an avid home brewer and very interested in making beer. Um, so what I've found is that uh, some of these chemicals that you find out in space are the same chemicals that you find in beer. And so I've been looking into this and seeing what sort of things uh, we could put together to try and make something that, that might be drinkable from the materials out in space. So what sort of chemicals are we talking about here? Um, the main chemicals that commonly occur in beer and commonly occur in space, first of all, is ethanol is the obvious one. That's the alcohol. That's the one that gets you drunk. Um, we actually find a lot of that out in space, but once again, it's it's quite a complex molecule, and it requires something like a very warm temperatures for astronomers of 150 Kelvin, uh, that's 150 degrees above absolute zero, still very cold but warm in terms of space. Uh, you need these temperatures to be able to create the ethanol, but once you've got them, once you've got a star forming, then you'll find these um, molecules out in space. So I have the image in my head of a, a huge cloud of ethanol surrounding a star in space. Is that the right way to think about uh, it? Yes, surrounding a very young star. In fact, um, your average uh, high-mass star that produces lots of ethanol if you calculate how much ethanol is around that star, you find something... Uh, I'm Australian, so I use Australian units. Something like you could fill the Sydney harbour full of pure ethanol for every man, woman and child on the face of the earth. Or if you want to make beer out of it, you could fill the Sydney harbour 20 times over for every man, woman and child on the earth. Wow, that's a lot of ethanol. That is indeed. So what are the chemicals apart from ethanol can we find? Um, there are a few others. Um, one, one of my favourites is acetaldehyde, which is um, quite similar to ethanol, but um, if you get it in beer, it um, smells and tastes of green apples and is usually an indicator that your beer has not fin finished fermenting yet, so you need to leave it for a little while. Um, it's also a great thing for giving you terrible hangovers, so it's a great thing to avoid. But again, it's one of these chemicals out in space... Um, that forms in the in the warmer regions, um, so it, it's uh, created in only special circumstances. Another one that I really like is uh, diacetyl, which uh, has a sweet sort of buttery flavour to it in beer, and that's um, not been detected in space yet, but molecules very similar to diacetyl have been detected in space. For example, acetone, which is nail polish remover, and certainly don't want to drink that <laughs> stuff. Um, but you do find molecules like that in space, which are very similar to diacetyl. Right. So do we find all the ingredients we would need to make a beer in, in the same place? Yes, they all seem to occur in, in the same places, very close to these young stars, because that's the, the perfect um, physical environment to get these complex chemicals. So they all do occur in very um, small, compact regions within our galaxy. And has anyone found all the ingredients we need for a nice beer in the same place yet? Uh, a nice beer, well, I, I don't think we're quite there yet, unfortunately. Um, I guess th there's a few problems with this. First of all, there are many, many chemicals that go into making up a beer. Um, ethanol is one of the major ones, of course. Another major one, or the major one, is water. We find water everywhere in the galaxy, so those two are sorted out. We can make vodka quite easily. <laughs> Um, however, making uh, something that's, that's a nice-tasting beer is a lot more complex because you need many, many more chemicals out there. And those chemicals may well exist out there. It's just that, as astronomers, we've only detected about 150 chemicals in space. So that's not enough uh, variety. That's not enough um, 
uh, mixture to get in the right recipe to give us a decent tasting beer. So they could well be out there. We just have to look harder for them. Yeah, you've got me thinking of what it would be like to live on a planet within one of these clouds. Certainly um, planets are an excellent place to concentrate all these complex chemicals. So if we ever do get out into into stellar space, um, heading for where new planets are forming is probably the best place to look for all these complex molecules in the same spot. And then it's just a a matter of uh, setting up some sort of chemical fractionating column to get out all the right chemicals that we need and then put them together and you've got beer. So we've got these chemicals like ethanol in space. What sort of densities do they exist in and how much volume would we need to sweep up in order to to make a point? Um, There there is uh, something like uh, uh, what we say is a million to a few tens of millions of particles per cubic centimetre in these typical regions where the chemicals are are forming and evolving. Um, If you collected all the material around one star-forming region, as I said, you'd you'd have more than enough to feed the world for many billions of years. So I think if you had the right sort of spaceship to um, harvest a reasonable size of um, a reasonable volume of space, I think you could um, get enough of these chemicals together, no problem. Very good. Well, we look forward to some future time. Um, it probably won't be us. No, it's it's not going to happen overnight. But, you know, if we, if we refocus on all our energies away from studying galaxies that are too far away that we're never going to get to and put more energy into looking for complex molecules that might be in beer in space, um, I think we'll get there a lot quicker. And just before you go, you also make a, a beer podcast. Uh, I do. I have a small segment on a... Um, on a beer-related show, um, if I can advertise that, that's uh, radio.craftbrewer.org. And don't worry about the, the crazy Australian guy on there who does um, most of the work. Just listen to the little segments by Andrew Walsh. Great. We'll put a link to that on the show notes on the website as well. So thanks very much, Andrew, for joining us on the Jodcast. Thanks very much. Well, that's brilliant. It's good to know that uh, space, when we actually get out there, is fully equipped with everything we need to survive. And from one set of goodies up in space to another, here's the night sky this month with Ian Morrison. November's night sky. Well, of course, as the clocks have gone back, the evening actually starts really quite early. And in fact, because the night's getting longer, the stars you see in the sky in the early evening, perhaps when one is most likely to be looking out, stays pretty much the same for quite a while. Uh, Over towards the west, but still fairly high up, is that lovely group of constellations, Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. Their three brightest stars, Deneb, Vega, and Altair, forming what's actually called the Summer Triangle, but to be honest, you tend to see it best in the early autumn, when it gets somewhat darker. And below them is a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin, which you can pick out nicely with binoculars. Now, in the south as it gets dark and perhaps for the next couple of hours, is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which actually is upside down. The square of Pegasus, four fairly bright stars, and to the lower right of those is the arc of the mane and the head of the horse. In fact, the top left star is actually Alpha Andromedae. It's shared with the constellation Andromeda. If you go up and round two stars up and to the left, turn sharp right go one bright star, and then to a rather fainter one. Beyond that, you'll actually see the nearest 
giant galaxy to us, M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. That's a nice way to see it, to find it. And that can be seen with your unaided eye if it's really dark, but easily spotted with binoculars when you'll make out the central nucleus of the galaxy. With big binoculars on a really dark sky and with no moon, you can actually sometimes see the extent of the galaxy, which extends up to about three to four degrees across the sky. Above Andromeda is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, and that's another way how to find it. The three lower right stars form a little pointer, and that points down to Andromeda. And to the left of Cassiopeia is the constellation of Perseus. It's a very rich part of the Milky Way, and if you actually go about halfway between Cassiopeia and the brighter star Murfak in Perseus, you'll actually come across what's called the double cluster. It looks very sweet in binoculars, and even seen as a little fuzzy glow with the unaided eye. Now, Perseus could look a little bit different this month, but I'll tell you about that a little bit later on. Well, this is an interesting month for the planets, because in fact... Around the 8th of November, you could, in one night, actually observe all eight of our planets, and if you wanted to, two of the dwarf planets, which are Pluto and Ceres. They're all visible throughout the night, at least at some point during the night. Um, let's start at dawn. Around the 8th of November, a couple of days, a few days either side, Mercury reaches what is called Western Elongation. It's furthest in angle from the sun, and in fact you can see it then in the pre-dawn sky. On the 8th, it'll actually be about 30 degrees above the eastern horizon, down to the left of the star De Nebula, and that's the tail of Leo the Lion. So you need to get up about 5 o'clock in the morning, to be honest, between 5 and 6 to see that. So that is well worth looking for around a few days either side of the 8th. Binoculars are a great help in looking out for it, and it'll be quite bright, actually, at magnitude minus 0.4. Now, if you are up at that time, or even later, before dawn, you cannot help but see Venus. This morning, it was dominating the morning sky. Its magnitude is about minus 4.4, so it really is very, very bright. It's in the constellation of Virgo, which doesn't really have any bright stars. On the 1st of November, it's just more than half phase and has an angular size of about 22 arc seconds. During the month, the angular size drops down to about 18 arc seconds, but the area of the surface that's illuminated actually increases. Now, those are the two factors that affect its brightness. One is reducing, one's increasing. They roughly cancel out. And in fact, for several months, the brightness of Venus stays pretty much the same, but it ends November at magnitude minus 4.3. Now, Mars is getting progressively better. It's in the constellation of Gemini this month, and you can see it in the late evening and probably best around midnight. It's at magnitude minus 0.7 on the 5th of November, and it actually increases to up minus 1.2 towards the end. Mars, which is in the constellation of Germany this month, is nearing the Earth. In fact, it's closest to the Earth on the 19th of December. So the next couple of months or so are the best time to observe Mars for quite some time. It's currently about magnitude mi minus 0.7, and that will increase as the month progresses to about minus 1.2 or so. The angular size is also increasing as we near 
Mars, and it will reach 15 arc seconds by month's end. And that's pretty close to the maximum we'll actually see it this year. That means you ought to be able to see some of the details with a small telescope. The polar caps and dark regions such as Certis Major should be easily visible. We hope that the dust storms that really covered part of the surface have now died away. But you never quite know if they might actually start up again. We've had a few months this summer to observe Jupiter. I'm afraid it's never been very high in the sky because it's in the constellation off Eucus and close to the most southerly point of the ecliptic. That's the path of the sun and the planets across the sky. So it's not been the best year in which to observe it. Well, we can still see it for a couple of hours after sunset, and that will be true just for the next few weeks. So if you can, have a last look at Jupiter before it actually disappears close to the sun. On the 12th of November, it will lie just five degrees above a thin crescent moon. And that's three days after the new moon. And on the 13th of November, one day later, it'll be about 11 degrees to the right. So perhaps those are two days in which to look for it, find the moon, very thin crescent, and look either up above it on the 12th or over to the right on the 13th. Saturn is a morning object. On the 1st of October, it's about 6.5 degrees to the lower left of Regulus in Leo and 15.5 degrees up and to the right of Venus. So it's just above the line joining Venus and Leo. It's shining at magnitude plus 0.8 and starts the month with an angular size of about 17 arc seconds. As the Earth is now slowly approaching Saturn, this will actually rise to 18 arc seconds by the end of the month. Now, it's not as bright as we've seen it over the last few years because the angle at which we see the rings is reducing so they reflect less light towards us. And in fact, the ring will be seen, or should I say not seen, edge on in 2009, and we won't see it fully open again until 2016. Now, incidentally, around the 8th of November, when it's possible to look at Mercury, it's possible to see all eight of the planets in the solar system on one night. Venus, Saturn and Mercury before dawn, Jupiter low in the southwest at about 5.30, and Uranus and Neptune in the south after 6pm, with finally Mars rising in the east at about 10pm. Now, on the JBO night sky page, there'll be a chart showing you how to find Uranus and Neptune. And also this month, the dwarf planet Ceres, the largest object in the main belt, the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, is closest to the Earth. And again, there'll be a chart showing you how to pick that up, just visible to the unaided eye, better with binoculars. Well, what about special events this month? Well, there are two things, I think, to bring to your attention. At this moment, we actually have an unaided eye comet in the sky. It's called Comet P-17 Holmes. It's now about 240 million kilometres from the Earth. Now, normally, it would be about magnitude 17. You wouldn't expect to see it. But it was actually first discovered after a major outburst. And that happened about the 23rd of October. So it's now at about magnitude 3. And almost appears as a new star in the constellation of Perseus. During November, it'll move westwards towards Alpha Persei, which is Murfak, which is 
1.8 magnitudes. So if you see something brightish to the left of Murfact in Perseus, then you've almost certainly spotted the comet. And again, I've given a chart on the night sky page to help you locate it. Now, how long it will remain bright, whether it will rapidly dim or even get brighter still, we just do not know at this moment. So it's something to go up and try and look at as soon as you can. And basically, Perseus is visible throughout most of the night. As the moon gradually rises later and later over the next week or so, you'll have a very good chance to look at it. There's no tail visible as yet but you can see a nice round coma, which is the gas that sublimated off the nucleus that surrounds it. So that's really something to try and see. We don't often see an unaided eye comet in the sky. Well, every so often during the year, we have meteor showers. And in November, around the 17th, 18th and 19th, we have what are called the Leonids, because the radiant from which is where they appear to come from is in the constellation of Leo. The cometary debris that forms the meteors of the Leonid shower comes from a comet called Temple Tuttle. Sometimes it's very good, sometimes not as good. This year we're not expecting anything spectacular, and typically you might see 12 to 15 meteors per hour, which isn't a lot, but they do tend to be very bright ones. The little particles must be quite large, so it's actually worth having a look to see if you can see them. Now, at around the best time, 17th, 18th, 19th, the moon is actually around first quarter, so it's setting by about 10 o'clock at night. The best time to observe meteors is typically after midnight or around then, so basically the sky should be nice and dark. So around 17th, 18th, 19th, have a look for the near meteor shower. So in fact, quite a lot to look out for this month. It's a goodie. Best of luck. Thank you very much, Ian, and of course, more from him next month. And I'm afraid that brings the November issue of the Jodcast to an end. Yep, and remember you can download previous episodes of the Jodcast and all the parts thereof on the website at www.jodcast.net. And on the website you are going to find lots of extra links, images, and further reading. So if you've heard anything on the Jodcast that interests you, do check out the extra show links and follow them to learn a little bit more about the topics that we covered. Also on the website, you will find the Jodcast survey. Remember, there is a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars up for one lucky correspondent. Uh, but please fill in the survey so that we know what you want and what you think of the Jodcast. Yep, and you can also send in feedback just on the Jodcast feedback pages. So if there's anything else that you want to talk to us about, or if you want to ask us your questions, which we will get answered by Ask an Astronomer, then do fill in the pages on the Jodcast webpage. And if you enjoy the Jodcast, please tell your friends about us and get them to listen. And, and please do review us on iTunes if you haven't already. And even if you have already, please do it again. Uh, thanks then to Ian Morrison and to Megan. Thanks also to Tom Stitzer. And the two of us wrote the intro and outro together. And he played Bond and I play M. Of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to James Bond, which of course remains the property of Albert R. Broccoli. So, as I say, that brings us to an end. Do listen out for 
the November Extra issue coming in about a couple of weeks' time. And otherwise, until then, have a fantastic month. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Bye. You there. Would you please fetch another two vodka martinis? Shaken, not stirred. Thank you. Hmm. Uh, did you forget something? It was two vodka martinis. No, I didn't forget anything, Bond. M. Well, I'm glad to see you've taken some time off. I'm looking for you. You failed to answer your phone, your communicator, and if it wasn't for the implant, we never would have located you. Well, I think I deserve some rest in the company of my friend, do I not? Did you accomplish the mission? Hmm? Oh, that. But of course. Was there ever any doubt? James, uh, who is this? M. Meet Nick. Dr. Nick. <laughs>